Well, good morning. Nice to see all of you this morning. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Zach Anderson, and it's my honor to serve as one of the pastors here at Covenant. This morning, we are going to be looking together at the letter of First Peter. So if you brought your Bible or you want to pull it up on your phone, First Peter, it's at the very back of your Bible. You can read it, follow along on the screen behind me as well. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And a little context on the first letter of Peter. Uh, it was written by, with confidence, somebody. Peter, Peter there you go. Um, you're alive, good. Um, it was written by Peter, the Apostle Peter, the one who was Jesus' disciple, the one you've heard all the stories about. And he wrote it to uh, a group of exiled Jews who had become Christians. So the people reading this letter grew up as Jews, met or heard about Jesus, believed, and became Christians. And now they're exiled from their homes because of their faith in persecution. So with that context in mind, let's jump into God's word. <clears throat> Peter writes, As you come to him, the living stone, who was rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word for God's people, so we give thanks. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're here in this space and in the homes of the saints who are worshiping with us online. I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit gifted to us, you would speak to us through your word, bind my lips and tongue that I might not stray from your will. You are the one who is going to preach straight to our hearts this morning. So just take a quick moment to, um, to humble yourself and open your heart to whatever it is God might want you to receive today, might offer you. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the year 2008, something truly fantastic happened. 
In May of 2008, a man in an iron suit first graced the big screen. Tony Stark, Iron Man, came out in May of 2008. Thank you. We are excited about Iron Man in this room. Uh, And Iron Man uh, was the very first movie in what we now know as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And this may be an unpopular opinion, but it is my opinion, Pastor Jason, that Iron Man is the best movie in the MCU. So now we're just going to fight about that for 30 minutes and go home. No, um, I believe that Iron Man is the best movie in the MCU. You may disagree, and that's okay. We can still be friends. But a month after Iron Man came out in June, maybe one of the least acclaimed Marvel movies was released. And with this movie came something truly fantastic. Do any of you even remember what that movie was? Huh? Hulk, we've got some, some MCU trivia stars for you after the service. So, The Incredible Hulk was released only one month after Iron Man. This is the second movie. It even, it's hardly ever remembered. Nobody watches it anymore. It's not even on Disney+. Plus. It had a different actor to play the Hulk, Edward Norton. <clears throat> but with this movie, Marvel did something very, very awesome. I remember I was at the theater. I saw this movie in theaters, and I was sitting there, and the credits rolled after the movie. It was a good movie. And someone leaned over to me and said, you know, there's a scene after the credits of this movie. And I was like, what? You may not remember because you've seen like, what, 48 Marvel movies now that all have scenes after the credits, but this was a brand new thing. Like Iron Man one month prior was one of the first that I know of to do a post-credit scene. This is The Incredible Hulk one month later, and I felt like I had just heard the insider juice. There is a post-credit scene. And so we stuck around and... We watched the credits, and once they finally ended, it cut to the post-credits scene. It's in a bar, set in a bar, and the general from the movie, Incredible Hulk, is there sort of mourning his failure over, you know, a whiskey or something. And all of a sudden, the camera pans from this disheveled, sad-looking general to the door of the bar. And the door opens, and standing silhouetted by the light from outside is a man. Do you know who that man was? Not Jesus. It was Iron Man. Tony Stark is standing in the doorway of the Incredible Hulk movie. Now, Again, this is so ingrained in us, entrenched in our like, reality, that this may not seem surprising, but when can you think of a movie before The Incredible Hulk where a character from a different movie jumped into another movie? Like, I can't think of any. And 
the uh, wonderful, fantastic superhero Iron Man just showed up into the Incredible Hulk movie, and I was like, what? And then he walked up to the general, and he was like, yo, what would you say if I told you we're putting a team together? And I was like, oh, they're going to do another movie where, you know, the Hulk and Iron Man are in the same movie. This was mind-blowingly exciting for me, as you can tell. <laughs> and it, you know, like climax last year with the only good thing that came out of 2020, which was Avengers Endgame, with no less than 47 crossover characters all in one movie. This is just like totally revolutionary. Marvel did something no one had done to this level before. And I hope that I have been able to take you back into what it felt like when you saw that very first crossover of Tony Stark in The Incredible Hulk, or at least invited you into my own excitement and amazement, because that is exactly, maybe with a little less like happiness and a little more trepidation, but that level of like, whoa, is exactly how the readers of Peter's letter would have responded to this text that we have today. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says to a bunch of converted Jews that as you come to him, the living stone, which is a prophetic word for the Messiah, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood to offer sacrifices. Now, he introduces this new order of things. And to understand the weight of this, we need to go back into the old order of things. So the old order of the priesthood was established by God a couple thousand years earlier to the people of Israel. And God gave a list of very specific qualifications and disqualifications for priesthood. If you were going to be a member of the priesthood, this is what had to happen. Number one, base level foundational qualification is you had to be born a descendant of Levi. So in the tribe of Levi, the people of Israel were divided into 12 tribes based on their patriarch. And you had to be a descendant of the patriarch Levi if you were going to be appointed as a priest. The next level of qualification is that even if you were the son of a descendant of Levi, you also must have been a son of a priest if you wanted to be a priest. So not all Levites were priests by default of being Levites, but you had to be a son of a Levite to be a priest. And then in scripture we get a big bunch of like qualifications and disqualifications for priesthood. I'll just list a few of them. So some physical disqualifications. If you were blind, if you were lame or crippled in some way, uh, actually if you had cataracts, you couldn't be a priest. Uh, if you had a certain, certain types of skin diseases, you're disqualified. Um, 
And then let's say, uh, let's say you pass all those requirements and you are a priest and you've got a shift at the temple uh, on this day and you have accidentally or on purpose come into contact with a dead body. Well, you have to get someone to take your shift at the temple because you are now unclean and unfit to go into God's presence in the temple and serve. Even further than that, if you accidentally stepped into the same house where a dead body lay, all of a sudden, even if it was not on purpose, you're unclean and you have to get someone to take your shift at the temple. So why are there such strict rules and qualifications for priesthood? It's because the priests were the ones who entered into God's house and God's presence. And God is so holy, which means set apart, since perfection and sin. And so you had to pass a rigorous list of qualifications to be fit for this job. Peter says we're being built into a a holy priesthood, and he says we're going to offer spiritual sacrifices, and I just went through the qualifications for priesthood. I know you don't want me to open Leviticus and dig into the qualifications and rules for the sacrifices that had to be offered, right? No, we don't want that. Uh, But you could do some light bedtime reading in Leviticus if you want tonight. Uh, Let me just say they're equally strict and maybe more complex. And so Peter says, you are being built into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices and it blew these people's minds this is the job of a priest in a most uh, simplistic statement the priest was to speak to God on behalf of the people to intercede for the people before the Most High God. And they did this in a number of ways. The most common that you might think of is they would offer sacrifices. And so if you sinned and you became unclean or guilty of sin, you would bring an offering to the temple and you would go to the priest and you would say, please offer this sacrifice on my behalf and pray to the Lord that I might be cleansed of my sin. And they would offer the sacrifice because the, the wages of sin is death. And so an animal had to die. And then the, the people who came to offer the sacrifice could be clean because the priest would intercede for them. See how that works? The next way that they would do this is daily organization and administration of worship in the morning And in the evening, the priest would lead the people of Israel through worship uh, by leading them in prayers, reading of the scriptures, of the law, uh, and in songs of worship. 
finally, what they would do for the people is if someone had an inquiry of God, they would go and approach the priest at the temple and say, I have this question for God. Will you ask God for me this yes or no question? And the priest would say, sure. And they would go intercede on behalf of the person and God would give them a yes or a no. And then they would go back to the person and say, you know, yes, you should or may do this or that, or no, you should not or may not do this or that. I think a very uh, beautiful way to describe all of this, this all-encompassing role, the responsibility that was given the priests, this holy task, was this. To lead the individual person and the community to experience the nearness and presence of God. So if you're a priest, this is a special job, a holy calling, a weighty responsibility to lead the individual and the community into experience the nearness and presence of God. And so for the Jewish converts who read this letter, put yourself in their shoes for a second. They grew up spending their whole lives whenever they wanted to enter into and experience the nearness and presence of God, most likely the best way for them to experience that was to go to the temple and to have a priest intercede on their behalf. And so when Peter says, you are a holy priesthood, and flips this new order, this new way of things, this would be incredibly radical, and deeply meaningful. But the thing is, this truth is not just for the Jewish converts. It's also for today. And it's not just for the super-Christians. Okay, we have this false dichotomy of things where we believe that, uh, that pastors or church staff or people who really look like they have their life together or people who don't sin that much are a super Christian and better fit to serve God or more called to serve God. But I don't see that in this text. It just says, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus... You are being built into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And so maybe you're hearing that and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't know about me. Like, you don't know the mess that I live in. If you went to my house and you saw like, okay, maybe the living room and entryway is clean, but you go into the, the bedrooms and the closets, they're a disaster. Okay, I am the furthest thing from like all together and, and pure and clean. Or better yet, like, have you seen what goes through my mind? Do you know the thoughts that I have sometimes? You don't want me for a priest. You know about my my secret habit. 
like the, the darkest, grossest, dirtiest part of my life. If you knew that, you wouldn't be telling me that, that I'm a part of this holy priesthood. But Peter gives us some great news, both on the front end of verses 4 and 5 and on the back end. On the front end of verses 4 and 5, he says that as you come to him, Jesus, you are being built like a living stone. Now, somebody tell me, when have you ever seen a stone build itself into a finished product. No stone in the history of the existence of the world has ever built itself into a finished product. If you are being built, there's a builder. Amen? There's a builder. And the only qualification listed is that as you come to Jesus, 2 plus 2 equals 4, if you come to Jesus, you are being built by the builder. The second piece of good news is at the end of verse 5, and it, it speaks to the spiritual sacrifices. Peter says that these sacrifices are made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Your offerings are made acceptable to God. They meet the qualification list. They pass through Jesus Christ. That means you aren't responsible for making the sacrifice acceptable. Jesus is responsible for making the sacrifice acceptable. It's by his blood, his life, death, and resurrection that your offerings as priests are acceptable to God. And then we get this first of three prophetic quotes that Peter gives us in this passage. He quotes Isaiah 28, and he says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So he says, your sacrifices are acceptable through Jesus, and if you trust in him, the scripture tells us that you will never be put to shame. This is a promise. And so when you're feeling that nudge to go to your friend and maybe tell them about Jesus, or you see someone who's at the grocery store and they're looking really discouraged, like they're having a bad day, and you feel that nudge to, to go up and just offer a little message of, of hope, maybe a message of friendship, or just like, hey, I hope you look like you're a little down, but you know, you're not alone. There's people in this community. I hope you have a great day. Um, or even asking them what's going on. I mean, or is that too far? When you feel that nudge, it's the Holy Spirit. And when you go, but then you hesitate because you hear this voice that says, you're probably not going to do a good enough job 
of communicating what you want to say. Or maybe you, you hear a voice that says, oh, they don't really want to talk to you. You know, they're just here to get their groceries and get out. Well, guess what? Maybe they are, but maybe they don't know what they actually need. Like maybe they need a smile. When you hear that voice of failure that gives us a threat of shame and you hear that fear, it paralyzes you. But the antidote is truth. And so you can say to the fear, you have no hold over me because I am being built. My sacrifices are acceptable through Jesus and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You can speak that out, out loud over the fear. I put my trust in Jesus and I will never be put to shame. Amen. As we continue in this chapter of 1 Peter, <clears throat> we come to a, maybe a surprising turn. And we come out of this beautiful message of security and safety and confidence into this unexpected, like, kind of a sad statement. In verse 7, Peter says, Now to you who believe, this stone, Jesus, is precious. But to those who do not believe, and then he quotes to us two more prophetic texts. He says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So people have rejected Jesus. And it has also become a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And now you might be like, how in the world is the Messiah going to make people stumble and fall? Like that's not what he came to do, right? But we know we can't just like ignore this. This is in God's Word, and that means everything in God's Word is objective truth. Amen? I was a little weak. I hope you believe that everything in God's Word is truth. Amen? So we need to dig a little further and, and sit with it. The good thing is Peter doesn't stop there with that kind of shocking statement. He continues with a little bit of an explanation. <clears throat> and in verse, uh, verse 8, the second half of verse 8, he says, the people that stumble, they stumble because they disobey the message. They disobey the message. So what was the message of Jesus? I think most simply we can pare it down to two statements. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe the gospel, and you will be saved. Repent and believe, and you will be saved. Now, 
you might be like, what's so hard about that message that someone might stumble over that? I mean, that sounds great. That's freeing. That's not that hard. It doesn't sound that hard. <clears throat> but from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see people stumbling on that message over and over again. I mean, just look at the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like G the antagonist of the Gospels. Really, it's Satan, but they're kind of presented in this light. They're always doing battle with Jesus in these public discussions. Put yourself in their shoes for a second. Maybe this won't be as hard as it initially seems. They have spent their whole lives working to be pure enough, to be good enough for their sacrificial offerings to be acceptable enough. They've been killing themselves. And then this guy waltzes in and says, no one can be saved by works of the law, but only through grace. Only by the death and resurrection of a perfect sacrifice. Do you understand what that would have been like for them? I mean, they're, they're presented with this tension that says... Everything I've been killing myself to do day after day after day. You telling me I didn't have to, to do all of that to get this goal? To get the prize? To be acceptable? Man, I just can't believe that. Because they would have to like, lay down their idol. They would have to lay down everything they put their heart and soul into, blood, sweat, and tears shed, to believe that. I'm not saying it's bad to do good things, but if that's where you place your hope on your acceptability to God, it's wrong. It separates you from Him because He offers something freer, better. Maybe we're not so different from the Pharisees. Maybe we've spent our lives trying to be worthy of acceptance. Worthy of walking through those pearly gates. You don't have to work so hard. Jesus paid the price for you. And so Peter continues with this turning point. He's, he has acknowledged that there are those who stumble at this message of grace. 
but he reminds the recipients of this letter who they are. And he says, but you, unlike those who stumble and fall over the cornerstone, the Messiah, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. He's reaffirming the message that he delivered to them just a few verses before. He says, you are a holy nation, God's special possession. Hold on. You are God's special possession. Like, you just think he's reaffirming what he already said, and then he just drops that. Think about a special possession. What's your most special thing in this life? Maybe it's your spouse or your kids, your parents, a best friend. Hopefully it's not made out of plastic. But if it is, think about that, I guess. Like, think about what the most special thing in your life means to you. You are God's special possession, and He loves so much more perfectly than you do. You're His treasure. And Peter says, you're established as this. Because you are to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, real quick, I want you to look around you. Look at the people you see in this room. Now, I want you to look at this camera. And the people that this represents are brothers and sisters worshiping from home. And to you, if you're worshiping with people, look at one another. Imagine your brothers and sisters here in this space thinking of you. And I'm going to read verse 10 over you. Peter says to the believers, Once... You were not a people. That word people means like nation, family, unit, like belonging to one another. Once you were not a people. You had no connection to one another. But now you are the people of God. And then he says the thing that binds us all together, one with another. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, do you see this picture he's painting? This is the church. And it doesn't matter if you're a guest. If, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are the people of God with us, one with another. It doesn't matter your ethnicity doesn't matter your favorite food or your favorite color or your sins. If you have received mercy, you are the people of God. You used to not be, but now you are. 
You are the church. Not this building. Not the church you grew up in. Not that building. But every Christian on planet earth is a people bound together by the mercy they've received from Jesus. So uh, there's two takeaways I want to give you. I'm going to give you the first one through a story. A couple years ago, I was riding in the car with some friends. I was in the back seat, and we pull up to a red light, and I glance over to my right out the window, and there is a construction site. And on this construction site, there are no people except for one kid who is like seven or eight years old. And before you say, now, Zach, you better have jumped out that car and go save that kid from the construction site. Hold on. He had on a hard hat. And he was carrying this trash bag that was almost as big as he was. And he walked up to this big old construction site dumpster and he heaved the trash bag up into his arms and he kind of jumped and shoved this trash bag about two feet shy of where he needed it to get to get in the dumpster. And I was like, man, that was admirable, but not going to happen. And then this kid did something amazing. He picked up the trash bag, and instead of getting it up here and heaving, he turned to the side, and he twisted his body, and he used all his momentum to throw this trash bag up and about a foot shy of where he needed it to go. And by this point, all of us are like watching this kid. I mean, if this light turns green, we're getting honked at because we're all staring at this kid, and we're like, you can do it. And he picks up this trash bag, and he takes off his hard hat. It was getting in his way. And he turned around backwards, and he hinged down, and he heaved the trash bag up over his head into the dumpster, and we erupted in applause. You know why? Because we just saw over the span of about 20 or 30 seconds in this little seven or eight-year-old boy the incredible potential for growth in a person. So here's the first takeaway. You are being built by the most wonderful, skillful, perfect builder this world will ever know. And you, because of him, have an incredible potential for growth. So you should get excited about that. What are you going to look like as you come to Jesus for six months, one year, two years, five years, 20 years? What will you look like? It's exciting. You're being built. And here's the second takeaway. You cannot lose. You cannot lose. If you come to Jesus and you put your trust in Jesus, your offerings are acceptable. And when you trust in him, you will never be put to shame. Can I get an amen? So church, all of the believers, as you go out into this community, 
You are a family in Christ. And you are a holy priesthood. And you have a job. What's the job of the priest? To intercede before God to the people. For the people. So as you go out into this community and you offer sacrifices of prayer, of serving the community, blessing them, giving to them, caring for them, protecting them, providing for them, loving them, smiling at them. These sacrifices have been made perfect by Jesus. And if you put your trust in him, you will never be put to shame. So go into this community because you and your offerings are pure through Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. We don't deserve this, but you love us. You cleanse us and purify us and you send us out. A people, a family, the church. And so we offer spiritual sacrifices I pray that you would bless those offerings in this community. Let it bear fruit. And we worship you. Covered by Jesus.